So what we've been doing for the last several weeks, and we'll continue on throughout August uh, into the first part of September, is we've just been looking at Psalms. And we've just been parking in the Psalms. And what we've been wanting to do in the Psalms is to say every, kind of every week, we want you to be reading the one Psalm that, we just, that I just preached on, that was just preached on, and then we want you to read the Psalm that's coming up. And so this week is Psalm 51. So you read Psalm 51 in the mornings this coming week. And the next week I'm going to preach on Psalm 20. And so you can read Psalm 20. And the good thing is like, like Psalm 51, we've been talking like two weeks ago is 88. And we got some, some songs and maybe some despair. And so uh, Psalm, Psalm 20 is, is, is it'll say it's a good one. It, it, it'll encourage you. And so what I want you to do is I want you to read Psalm 51 in the morning and read Psalm 20 at night. And what it does, it helps you reflect on what was just said. And it helps you prepare for what's about, to be, what's about to be preached. And in that, what I'm hoping really is that you'll internalize the, like, the God's Word. Like it'll, it'll, take, it'll take root in you. That's the whole idea why we read Scripture over and over again. Why we marinate it. Why we don't just read it once and go, okay, I, like I've got that. I'll read something 20, 30, 40, 50 times. And even after that, I'll talk with somebody who read it for the first time. And they'll say, you know what I saw? And they'll tell me what they saw. And I go, that's brilliant. Brilliant. I read that passage 50 times. I did not see that. You read it once, and it's just brilliant. This, as it speaks to the depth of God's Word. And so I want to encourage you to do that. This week, Psalm 51 in the mornings, Psalm 20 at night. And so this morning was actually interesting because we are going to get, be able to place the psalm into where it actually happened. A lot of the psalms we can't place, and that can be troubling at times. And so these psalms, these cry out, as people, as their hearts are crying out, we go, we don't really know, like, sometimes like, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. We just kind of know it was in this general ballpark. If you look at the psalms, the title, sometimes they'll give you a clue. It'll say, it'll say a psalm of David, maybe. But we don't know where it took place. And I think that sometimes that's the hard thing, especially when you, when you read some of like, David's laments, right? Where it's like, it's like when David says things like, God, where are you? God, I feel so alone. God, why are, the, why are my enemies winning and why am I losing? It's troubling for me that we can't place that in David's life, right? It's not like we can't look at David's life and go, oh, well, if he's speaking like that, it was, it was specifically this one time when this one thing happened. The problem is we hear words like that from David, like, God, where are you? Why are my enemies winning? Why am I losing? And then we look at David's life and we go, wow. It could be lots of places where he felt like that. It could be here. It could have been here. could have been here. could have been here. could have been here. But this morning's going to be different because we actually get to place it. The Scriptures place it for us. And we look this morning, it's going to be a psalm of David, but it's going to come from one of the most broken places of his life. And we're going to get a window into that. If you go into Jerusalem and Israel today... Everything is about the great King David. And what it says about David is that he was a man after God's own heart. And so even when you go to Israel today, right? I mean, there, everything is about King David. I mean, you would take King David Street down past King David Plaza. 
You can actually visit the King David Hotel. You end up at the King David bus stop. I mean, it is, everything is about King David. The one time we were there, we ate at McDavid's, which is like their version of McDonald's. It's like, so we, we even eat at McDavid's. Everything's about David. Am I right, Percy? Yes, and those, yes, the city of David. It's everything. I mean, those of you who have been there, you know what I'm talking about. Everything's about David. And the throne of Israel is still seen to be David's. That's why it's very important that Jesus came down the line of David. Everything's about David. But the problem is, is that we, we read parts of David's story and we go, who is this? Is this the man after God's own heart? Is this the great mighty king? I mean, think about this for yourself. What if your deepest, darkest, most shameful and embarrassing sin was recorded on paper? You know how much work we do to keep that inside to make sure nobody finds that out? You know how hard we work to keep that a secret, to make sure that nobody knows? And, and the thought of people finding that out about you would terrify you. Pardon you. I mean, you, you, would, you would never, like, if you found out, like, if, 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 if God woke you up in the morning and says, just so you know, I've told the whole church about your deepest, darkest sin, like, do you show up at church? Like, oh, I think I got, like, breakfast plans or something. You know, I, I got I to gotta do something else. But what if, what if, like, beyond that, what if it was written down on paper? And not only was it written down on paper, it then became the canonized Word of God. So not that only would your friends read about it, not only would your enemies read about it, but when they died and you died, and then the next generation would read about it, and then the next generation would read about it, and then generation after generation would read about it. You go, oh, oh no. And what we find about David is that although David, he was king, there came a time in David's life when, when he stayed back, from war. It says that the people were out at war and then David stayed back. And in staying back, and some of you I know you're familiar with this story, in staying back, as he's in his palace, he's looking down on the houses and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba bathing. And he says to himself and to his people, he says, I want her. And so they go and they get her and they bring her back and he is with her. For those of you guys that are under 18, ask your parents. Like, what does that mean to be there with her? Like, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, but but they, 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 have, they have relations. They sleep together. They have sex. And they send her back on, on her way. And she sends word. And she sends word. The word that she sends is, I'm pregnant. Now, you think about those, those words. I'm pregnant. Right? Because there's really two really different responses people can have to that. I mean, if you've been trying to get pregnant, you've wanted to start a family, you take the test, it comes back that you're pregnant, and then you get to tell your husband, like, I'm pregnant. And there's this big celebration. There's maybe even tears and crying and thinking about what is the world going to look like? That's the one one. That's the one. The one one. That's the one one. That's the one. And then the other is, I'm pregnant. And it's like a, oh no, you're, 
Your what? Now, this is the, your what? I'm pregnant. So what's David going to do? Because, because his sin is going to be found out. And so David probably did what most of us, some of us would probably do in this room, is that he just tries to hide it. And so the problem with Bathsheba is that she's married. She's married to a man by the name of Uriah, and he's out fighting the war. And so David says to himself, if, if I can bring Uriah home, I'll give him leave from the war. He can come home. He can, he can sleep with his wife, and then he'll think that the kid is his. Brilliant plan, right? Just what a, what, a, what a great way to hide the sin. And so that's what he does and brings Uriah back. And Uriah basically says, I'm not going to sleep with my wife. I'm not going to be with my wife when my men are at war and they don't get to be with their wives. It's very problematic when Uriah, the Hittite, has more integrity than David does. That's convicting. It's convicting when you are caught in sin, you try to get somebody else to unknowingly cover your sin for you, and they have the integrity that you should have. So he says, I'm not going to do it. So then, so then David sends word, you know, sends Uriah back out and says word, says put him on the front lines. And which for, for Uriah and for the war, that was the death sentence. And so he puts Uriah's put on the front lines and Uriah dies. And so we go, you want scandal, right? You've got adultery. You've got murder. You've got lying. You've got cheating. And not only is this happening, but this is happening at the highest level. This is the king. And so there is power things that are at play. Abuse of power, abuse of influence, abuse of the things that God has given him. Now we look at this and we go, this is the man after God's own heart. Like, how do we get there? And it's interesting, actually, we're even wrestling with this now as a culture. How do we have these, these historical heroes with such checkered past? And so it's interesting, even right now, we feel the need to sort of rewrite history. Either we rewrite history or we forget them altogether. The very interesting thing about King David is that God's word does neither one. It doesn't forget him and it doesn't rewrite his story. So then how do we remember him after the man after God's own heart? And so this happens. Uriah's died. He's been killed. Bathsheba's pregnant. And then God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. Now in the Old Testament, there's three main offices, prophet, priest, and king. The prophets speak on behalf of God to people. The priests represent people back to God. That's why they do the sacrifices. And the kings oversee the civility of the people. And so there's a reason why God would send the prophet, because the prophet comes on behalf of God, and the prophet would say that, that this is what God is saying. So God sends the prophet, Nathan, to David. That's where we're going to pick up our story. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel. And we're going to start in verse 12. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. That's what I'm saying to say. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, 
there are two men in a certain city. The one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe, lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. He used to eat of, the, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor, the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And so, David, who, who has this... This, this sin, this secret. God says to Nathan, he says, Nathan, I want you to go talk to David. Got some problems with David. Got some issues with David. And I need you to say some things to him. And I love what, what Nathan does. Nathan says, David, let me tell you a story. Love stories. Let me tell you a story. This would be a story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man had one lamb. And the way that we describe this lamb is like he was a pet. He was part of the family. Some of you guys who have pets, who have animals that are part of the family, you get this. He raised it like a daughter. He ate off the table. She, she drank from the, the lamb drank from the cup. This lamb was part of the family. It, had, it would have had a name. And then the rich man who had hundreds of lambs, lots of lambs, any lambs that meant nothing to him. They were just a lamb. He had lots of them. He had a friend come into town. And when that friend came into town, he didn't take one of the lambs that meant nothing to him. He went and took the lamb from the poor man that meant everything to him. And he slaughtered that one to give to his friend. David's response is, I hate that man. That man should die. And then Nathan's response is, you are the man. By the way, not, not, not like, you're the man. Like, 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 you are the man. That's a whole different context, right? You're the man. No, you are the man. And so I think it's about you and about me. Like, what do you do when you become the person you hate? Right? I mean, what do you do when you are confronted because you have become the person that you hate? Truth is, like, we all want to be the hero of our story. We all want to be the hero of our story. The problem is, is often we are the villain. And what do we do when we become the person that we hate? You know, sometimes like when if you were told your story, if somebody told you your story and your character and who you are, you'd go, oh, I don't like that person. You'd be like, well, that person is you. 
You see, it's easier for us to see the brokenness, the sinfulness in other people than it is to see in ourselves. It's like, oh, I hate that person. They're such a gossip. They're such a gossip. And I don't know who she is to be gossiping because doesn't she know, like, well, I heard this about her. And so I don't know who she thinks she is to be gossiping because I, I heard she said this to this one other person and then she went and did that. So I don't know who she thinks she is. But didn't you just gossip? Okay, 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 yes, totally different, totally different. That one was justified, that one was correct. Somebody breaks their promise to you. Why would they break their promise to me? Who do they think they are? They always break promises. Why would they do that to me? And then somebody says, didn't you break a promise to them? Well, well, yeah, but that's totally different. Or for some of you, maybe like, even growing up and currently, you go, I'm not going to be like my mom. I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like my mom. I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like that. You grow up, you raise up, you say a couple of things, you do a couple of things, you go, oh, no. Oh, no. I became the very person I despised growing up. What do you do in that moment? That's what Psalm 51 answers. So now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 51. A lot of yours will even say, like mine says, to the, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is David's response. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let me read that again. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I love this, this idea of like, have mercy on me, God, according to, right, your steadfast love and your mercy, your love and your mercy. So God, would you please, would you please grant me mercy because you are a loving God and you are a merciful God. It's interesting that like when, when David was confronted about his character, what does he ask for? He asks mercy, but based on what? God's character. God, don't extend mercy to me based on my character. Extend me mercy based on your character. It's interesting because sometimes when maybe we think like we're con- we're confronted. We want to like justify some things or like, well, God, here's, I'm going to tell you how what you're saying is wrong, how it was really, really, really right, actually. If you look at it one lens or one place and one position and squint the one eye, how this was actually the right thing to do. And so God, actually, in my unfaithfulness, I was faithful, actually. You call it unfaithfulness? I was faithful. So would you have, faith, would you have mercy based on my faithfulness? But his mercy isn't, his request for mercy is not based on, on his faithfulness, on his goodness. His mercy is based on, on God's character, on His love, on His mercy. Not even have mercy on me, God, because I have been so good for you for so many years. Not have mercy on me because I am king of your people. 
Not have mercy on me because, God, I've done wonderful things for you in the past, this was, but this was a problem. He says, have mercy on me, not based on my character, but based out of your character, God, because you are a good, loving, and merciful God. And I love what it says here is that he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's three main words that are used for the, the word sin in the Bible. All three in these opening two verses. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. This idea of sin that he's like, I, I, man, I missed the mark. God, like I went out, I tried to tell the truth. And then at the second, it, it, just, it, just, it just skewed. I went off. I tried. I tried, but I failed. This idea of, of transgression, this rebellion against God. So, so sin's one thing. Transgression's different. Transgression is like, no, I set out to lie and I, I, I accomplished it. Where sin maybe would be like this idea, like I, I wanted to tell the truth, but then I ended up lying. Transgression would be just outright rebellion. I decided to lie. I went in going, I'm going to lie. I know it's not good, but I'm going to lie. That's what I'm going to do. And then this idea of iniquity would be more of like this idea of like uh, twisting the truth. If I look at it, if we shift it, We shape it. There are other kings who do these sorts of things. Isn't this what good kings do? I'm just taking what's quote-unquote rightfully mine as a king. It can go from you shouldn't do it to like it would be, wouldn't be the worst thing if you did it. It would actually be okay if you did it to then it's the right that I do it. That's iniquity. And so he says, I love how he says everything here. He calls it all out. It's interesting today because we think like sin has become such a dirty word because sin implies judgment, which I would agree. Sin does imply judgment. But we can say, can we just say other things like, oh, I I, I misspoke. I didn't lie. I I misspoke. Or I I didn't lie. I just, uh, I just, uh, um, I I, I tweeted something I shouldn't have tweeted or whatever. It wasn't a lie. It was just, it was something else. And I go, can we just call sin, sin? We can't anymore. And I love what David does when confronted with his sin. He says, call whatever you want. Call it sin, transgression, iniquity. It's actually all three of those. And he doesn't try to lessen it. What actually he tries to do is he kind of, he even deepens it. David owns his rebellion, his missing of the mark, his twisting of nature. Verses uh, three through four. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says, it's ever before me. You ever know what it's like? You know what it's like to have your sin ever before you? Always present. Always reminding you. Always telling you. He says, it was ever before me. It's interesting because I think at some level, David thinks that he hid it. He hid it. People didn't find out. Uriah died. Bathsheba, he took in Bathsheba. But he goes, man, I, I may have fooled other people, which I don't think he did, but I may have fooled other people. But my sin is, 
is ever before me. And that becomes a problem. Nobody else knows. You're doing a good job hiding it. The problem is, it's ever before you. And so he says, my, my sin has been ever before me. And he says this weird thing, against you and you only have I sinned. To which there should be something inside us that goes, well, like, just against God? Because I could, I, could, I could think of a list just from the story of people that he had sinned against. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel by doing this. He sinned against Bathsheba by doing this. He sinned against his unborn child for doing this. He sinned against Uriah for doing this. And yet he comes here and goes, God, it's you and only you that I have sinned. It's this idea that God is the most offended by our sin. God is the most, he is the most offended. Uh, he's the most outraged by our sin. And ultimately, every sin that we ever do, we could always trace it back to God. Why? Because we are sinning against his, his own creation. We are sinning against uh, that which is created in his own likeness. So all of our sin ultimately goes back to God. He goes, against you and only you I have sinned. And I love the statement, God, you are blameless in your judgment. You are justified in your words and you are blameless in your judgment. Have you ever been caught doing something and then there's consequences? Like maybe when you're a kid, your parents say, hey, I, I heard you, 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 you stole. You're like, yeah, I, I did steal something. Stole a candy bar from the store. Okay, well, you're going to take it back. Okay, I'll take it back. That's, that's right. And then they would say something like, oh, and by the way, you're grounded for two weeks. Two weeks? Two weeks? Two weeks? That seems a little outrageous. I mean, we're talking about a candy bar. Now I lost two weeks of privileges. And I love what David says here. He goes, God, you're, you're right. Like whatever you want to say, two weeks, a year, 10 years, my life. God, you are justified in your action. You are justified in your judgment. And God, you are right. One of the things I love here is that David owns it. So first he calls sin, sin, and asks for God's mercy, and then he owns it. He goes, God, this is me. Like, this is, this part, this is, this is on me. I think if you were David, if I was David, we might have a little more justification. Well, God, it wasn't right, but, I mean, everybody else is out of war. But, God, I'm king. But God, like, did you see her? I mean, she was bathing. Like, what's a guy supposed to do? It's interesting that what he doesn't do is he doesn't shift the blame. When he's confronted with this sin, he calls it everything he can call it in the book, and then he, he owns it to go, and that's my fault. It reminds me back of, like, remember in Genesis 3, when God says, don't eat of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you do that, you're going to die. And then Eve goes on and she takes a bite of said fruit. And then she gives that fruit to, to Adam. And then Adam takes a bite and the, their eyes are opened. And then God comes down. And what does he do? Calls out for Adam. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. You're hiding? Well, why are you hiding, Adam? Because I'm naked. Oh. So who told you you were naked? 
Did you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat of? What does he say? Well, it was the helper that you gave me who was not helping me at all in that moment. She gave it to me, and I ate of it. And then what does he do? Eve? Whoa, whoa, whoa. It was the serpent. I mean, I mean, who puts the serpent in the garden, right? The serpent came along. It's not my fault. What do we see? We see God call into account. We see Adam shift the blame to Eve. We see Eve blame, shift the blame to, to, to Satan, to the serpent. I love Dave in this moment. What do we see him do? We don't see him shifting any of the blame. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, I was born this way. I was born this way, God. I I was born into sin. I'm a sinner. I was born into sin. I've known sin. My parents were sinners. Their parents were sinners. But look what he does. He goes, but, but behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. This idea that I was born into sin, but God, I, just, I know that you are asking me to be something different. I think one of the great, great tensions of every Christian is this idea that we were born, yes, we were born this way, but we're called to be something different. And so he, 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 he calls it sin, he owns it, and says, God, and I know that you want something different from me. He goes on then in verse 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let, my, let the bones that you have broken, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David understands that he cannot cleanse himself. It's interesting because where we think that forgiveness and purity, we think sometimes come from the same place. This idea that sometimes you'll hear people say, you need to forgive yourself. You need to forgive yourself. And I would say, yeah, there are some times where we need to give ourselves more grace. But the problem is I can't forgive myself. I mean, you think about what he just said. God, I have sinned against you and you alone. Even sins that are internal are still sins against God. So which means that at some level, I I could forgive myself, but it wouldn't do me much good because ultimately what I need is forgiveness from God. And forgiveness and cleansing are going to come from the same place. Forgiveness requested and forgiveness granted are going to come from the same place. For if I steal from Roberto, I took his money. It didn't really happen, but if I took Roberto's money and I went to Evan and I said, Evan, so I, I stole 30 bucks from Roberto, would you forgive me? 
Everybody like, well, everyone would probably be like, no, you need to go to Roberto. Ask Roberto for forgiveness. But that would be the right answer. But, 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 but Evan can't give me the forgiveness because it wasn't, it wasn't here. It was here. And so he understands because I have ultimately sinned against God. I didn't just sin against myself. I didn't sin against just, just Bathsheba or just Uriah or just my unborn child. I sinned against ultimately God that I know that only forgiveness can come from one place. This is why if, if you're told you, all you need to do is just forgive yourself, this is why you keep on failing at that because you cannot. All you can do is receive the forgiveness that's been given to you in Christ. And stop, stop, stop asking Evan for Roberto's forgiveness. <laughs> On the recording, that will make no sense, but it makes sense in this room, right now in this room. And so he says, God, I I know that it comes from you. I know the change, the forgiveness, the purity, it comes from you. You have broken my bones, and only you can create a clean heart in me. Only you can renew the right spirit within me. And it's this interesting thing where I want you to look away from my sin, but I don't want you to cast me away. Did you catch that? Hide your face from my sin, but don't cast me out of your presence. How's he going to do that? Bring me closer, all of me closer. Bring me closer. Don't cast me away, but I want you to turn away from my sin. How's he going to do that? And restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 13, that I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And so then he just says this idea like, God, if you, so I've named it, named my sin, it's sin. I've owned it. I know that forgiveness only comes from you. So would you turn away from my sin but pull me close? And in that, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the world of your forgiveness. I'm going to tell the world about who you are. I'm going to teach other people to not go down this road. So not only did I learn something, but I'm going to teach other people these sorts of things. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. If it was just a sacrifice, I would have given it. But you don't want my sacrifice. What you want is my heart. And if all I'm going to do is offer you broken sacrifices, that's just empty religion. And God doesn't want empty religion. What he wants is you and your heart. And I love this. God will never despise a broken heart. Have you ever had somebody ask for forgiveness from you? And you had this sense of like, yeah, you just do it again. Like, oh, and maybe there's even tears in their eyes. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I did this. But the whole time you're thinking, yeah, I mean, not really. You're just kind of sorry of the outcome. That's different. And you're sorry that you got caught. And truth be told, if given the same circumstances, you'd do it again. 
And to which you would probably respond to yourself, this, this, not, I, this is nothing. Like, this is just, this is, you're just placating me with an apology. Your, your repentance is not repentance. Your ask for forgiveness is empty. Why? Because you just go out and do it again. And this is why he says, he goes, so God, if it was a sacrifice, I would give it. But you don't want a sacrifice. What you want is the broken heart, the contrite heart, to which you will not despise. Verse 18, then, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Did you catch that? It's that in verse 17 that God doesn't want sacrifices. You don't delight in sacrifice, verse 16. But then in 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices. So it's not that God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants the sacrifices that come out of the broken heart. And it seems kind of weird here at the end that he would just go, and by the way, do good to Zion. It's like one of these sometimes when you pray and you pray and you pray and you go, oh yeah, by the way, I forgot. Um, also, you know, uh, thanks for the rain or whatever it would be, right? But actually, I think what he's saying here is he goes, do good to Zion. In other words, I'm as the king have sinned and he gets corporate sin. That sin always has ramifications. Sin always has a ripple effect. It's like throwing a stone into a pond. It always has a ripple effect. And I think what he is saying is, God, I have sinned. This is my thing. This is on me. Don't reject me. And by the way, don't carry out the said consequences on Zion either. It's not their fault. It's my fault. So back to this original question. What do we do when we become the person we've hate? Why do we remember David as a man after God's own heart, other than the Scripture tells us that? Why do we remember him as the good king? Did you hear the story? And it's not because of David's sin, but because of what he did with his sin. See, I think most of us in this room, we're afraid that our greatest sin will define us. We're afraid that our greatest sin is already defining us. What happens when people find out that you're an adulterer? They'll go, you're an adulterer. What happens when people find out that you're a liar? (gasps) You're a liar. What happens when people find out that you're a cheat? (gasps) You're a cheater. You see, what we're afraid is is that when we're confronted with our sin, that our sin will be the thing that defines us. But the beautiful thing about this is that our sin will not define us, but what we do with our sin will define us. You see, the reason why we don't remember David as an adulterer, we we remember the story, we covered the story, but when we look at David as King David, the reason why we don't remember him as an adulterer is because when faced with his sin, he repented of it. And trusted God for forgiveness. What you do with your sin will not, sorry, your sin will not define you. But what you do with your sin will define you. And so my question to you is, what do you do with your sin? Do you hide it? Do you suppress it? Do you cover and lie for it? Because if you do, then that will define you. Or do you do what David did, which is confess it, own it, and repent of it? 
we are in a beautiful place that for the, the Christian, this is what Jesus does, right? I mean, you think about 51, this is what Jesus does. He forgives us of the sin that we cannot forgive ourselves for. And then what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit. Remember he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Actually, what we find with Jesus is that Jesus, he forgives us of our sin. He cleanses us. He then gives us the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says. He says, I have to go so that I can send, I can send the helper, the Spirit to you. And what the Spirit does is the Spirit comes in and then he reshapes us, reforms the way we think. He creates in us a clean heart. You see, the response that David had to sin is he said, said, God, don't cast me away. Forgive me of my sin. Give me your spirit and, 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 and change the way in which I think. And then Jesus comes along and he says, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually a really good prayer. I do all of that. I will forgive you of your sins. I will make you clean. I will give you my spirit and my spirit is going to change your mind. It will renew, you will renew your mind and your heart. And so one of the beautiful things for the Christian is that this is your journey. This is what you get to trust in. If you're not a Christian, that's where you start. You can't forgive yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. If your sin was only against yourself, then maybe. But your sin's greater than that. And if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. If you are a Christian, a little bit of the same thing. It's the one that you trust in for forgiveness, but you also confess and repent of your sins. David was remembered not for his sins, but what he did with them. And for you, the same will be true. You will not be remembered by your sin, but what you do with it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a God who offers forgiveness to us. We thank you for Psalm 51. We thank you for the brokenness, the honesty of it. God, I pray that we would find ourselves in places of, of similarity in the fact that we, that when con- confronted with our own sin, that we own it, that we seek forgiveness from you of it, that it's confessed and repented of. May we stop hiding it. May we stop justifying it. May we stop contextualizing it and reframing it. May we stop lessening it and comparing it. May we own it. May we confess it. And may we turn around from it. May we not be remembered for our sin, but may we be remembered for what we did with it. And we thank you, Jesus that you define us by what you did with our sin on the cross. That you wore it. That you took it on as if it was yours and gave to us in return your righteousness and your spirit. We thank you. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.